Open your Bibles, and before we dismiss the children, I'd like to read our scripture lesson for the day. Acts chapter 4. Hopefully you have a Bible with you. There are Bibles in the back. You can just get up and go get one. It's right by the sound booth. I'm reading from the ESV translations. We are in Acts chapter 4. We're going through books of the Bible. What we like to do here, we have in the book of Acts this fall uh, into the winter and spring. And uh, we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I want to encourage you to read through this book several times throughout the course of our study. Um, It'll be uh, just a wonderful time of you spending with Jesus as you encounter his word. So read the book of Acts as you um, prepare for the study. We're in Acts chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people and priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who came to believe, really, is about 5,000. Verse 5, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We're going to go down to verse 22, but let's stop there. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this account that we have uh, that has taken place so long ago, but is so relevant today. And Father, we pray that as we open up your word that we would hear from you. Uh, This is not just information in a book, but transformation of of our lives is what we're looking for. So we ask, God, that you would just bless this reading, bless our time in the word, word, Lord. And um, as we go to communion after... Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts, uh, deep repentance if necessary, encouragement, however you see fit, whatever you see fit, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would respond for your glory and our joy. And we pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen, amen. So the children are dismissed to go, and we are in Acts chapter 4. We're going through this study together, and uh, we are up to chapter 4 in this, this newly birthed church. As half the church leaves, who's three feet and under. Love it, love it, love it. This newly church birth, this, this movement of God's people up to this point has been experiencing like lots of joy. Like people are coming to faith by the thousands. In fact, chapter 2, we read shortly after Pentecost, Peter preaches the gospel, 3,000 respond. And in chapter 2, verse 46, we read, And day by day, attending the temple together, that's the large gathering of God's people, breaking bread in their homes, that's the smaller gatherings of God's people. They did large and small settings. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts. They were sharing meals and and sharing the Lord's Supper together. Verse 47 of chapter 2, praising God, having favor with all the people. Man, things are going good. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Life is good. In the New Testament church in Jerusalem. Things are going well. They're enjoying each other's company. They're fellowshipping together. They're reading the word and breaking bread together. Couldn't go any better than they had hoped and planned. Jesus told his followers, listen, uh, uh, when he rose from the grave, he told them, listen, I'm going to ascend to the Father, but uh, you know, you need to know, you need to stay in Jerusalem. And, and, and when, I, when I ascend, I will then send the Holy Spirit. He will, he will come. And I will baptize you in or with the Holy Spirit when he comes. And you will receive boldness. You will receive power to be witnesses, to to be testifiers of the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. His work and his person. 
you will be proclaimers of that. And, and all Christians are promised that power. For those who are truly born of him, that belong to Jesus, we're promised the power to be witnesses, to be testifiers. It's not just a first century thing. But up to now, as we the first three chapters of Acts, um, this is exactly what's going on and really is not a whole lot to report other than people coming to faith. They're, 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 they're preaching the gospel. People are, are, are repenting of their sins. But here in chapter 4, things begin to change. Now we see persecution arise, opposition to the gospel, hostility toward Jesus and the church. John Stott, he's a theologian and professor, a dear Anglican brother, said this once about the beginning of Acts. He said, if the chief actor in the story of Acts 1 and 2 is the Holy Spirit, he says now, later on in the book, the chief actor almost seems to be Satan. True, he is identified only once by name, but his activity may be discerned throughout. So we're going to see as we look at chapter 4 together in in this text together, three things uh, for an outline for those who are following with an outline. First thing we're going to see is the irritation, the annoyance of the leaders, and that's going to bring us right into the multiplication of the church. We'll see how God is still pursuing people. And then we'll see the interrogation because they're going to grab Peter and John and they're interrogate them of what's going on. And in the midst of that, we're going to see their defense, their vindication. And then finally, as we go through the passage of Scripture, through verse 22, we'll see the instruction that the leaders give to Peter and to John and warns them. But we'll see how that just in, in almost encourages them to be bold, to be determined to share the good news of Jesus. When I was studying this passage this week and thinking it through and, and writing my, my, my script here, you know, I just seen this more of like a cause and effect. It's almost as if God is saying, you know, there, there's people who are going to be annoyed, but I'm still working. And the more, you know, the more determined it would have stopped them, God was just adding people to the, to his, to the body of Christ, to the church. And as they were interrogating him, it's, it, it was like they had an opportunity then to, to make a defense for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then finally, of course, his instructions, you know, they warn him, and it just seemed like Peter, that, that, that cause made them just declare the gospel even with more boldness. So that's kind of the way my head wrapped around this passage this, this morning. So as we look at this context, let me, let, me, let me look at this text. Let me put this in context, okay? Because if, if you weren't here last week, it's really important that we see that Peter and John in chapter 3 we're going to the temple, the, the huge temple in Jerusalem to pray. It was the third hour, it was about three o'clock. They, they went up to the temple. There was a man who was lame that was crippled uh, from birth. And they, they see this man, he sees them, and he says to them, to, to the apostles, to Peter and James, to Peter and John, give me some money. He's crippled, he's laying on a mat, he's begging for alms, and he says, give me some money. And Peter turns to him and says, look at me. I have no silver, I have no gold, but what I have, what I do have, I will give to you in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And immediately the man reached out his hand, Peter picks him up and strength came to his body and his legs and his ankles became strong. You can imagine being lame, the Bible says he was at least 40 years old, for 40 years having no strength, never walked. Just getting up would have been a task, right? As, as we get older, I could say that now, I guess. I don't know. You know, getting out of bed isn't easy and, you know, hop, skip, and a jump as it used to be, right? You're like, ah, oh, okay. You know, let me, let me, yeah, you know, you know, yeah. Especially you've been around a couple of times, a couple of car accidents, rolling motorcycles and stuff. Like, you know, it, it catches up. So this man who's 40 years, never walked, all of a sudden gets the strength jumps, leaps, praises God, walks into the temple, which was not allowed in before because he was a cripple, and he's praising God. And all this drew a huge crowd at the temple, right? Healing without a copay, we talked about, will draw lots of people. And Peter seizes this moment and the occasion, he begins to preach the gospel to them. And, and, and because he's in the Jewish temple, if you read the, the chapter 3, you'll see he goes to the Old Testament scriptures. He shows that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He goes back to Abraham. He talks about Moses. He talks about the prophets, all pointing to the reality and the fact that Jesus is the one that those men pointed to, that the scriptures pointed to. And he tells them that the healing 
that they see that took place is by the power of Jesus Christ because he's alive. He's risen from the dead. And this Jesus who rose from the dead made this man whom you see who was once lame, who's now walking, made him whole. He gave a great message and called everybody to repentance. And it had tremendous effect. Now, what I want us to see as we move into this passage, what I want us to see is how important, incredibly important, the context of being in the temple was to Peter and John before we move further. You have to understand in that day, the, the temple in Jerusalem was the, was the spiritual center, was, was in many ways the financial and political center of life. It was the place where God was. It was a place where God dwelt. It was the place where all the people of God went to worship in the presence of God. It was huge in their life. It was huge in their everyday, moment-by-moment life. N.T. Wright says this, he says, the temple was the focal point of every aspect of Jewish national life. Local synagogues and local schools of Torah in other parts of Palestine and the diaspora, which is the the scattered people, in no way replaced it, but gained their significance from their implicit relation to it, the connection to Jerusalem, even if they live far away. And he writes, in no way replaced it, Now he says, but gain their significance. It's important at every level. It's importance, excuse me. It's importance at every level can hardly be overestimated. I want you to see that. It wasn't going to church on Sunday. All life, every day, everything about them was around the temple. Was around the temple. And here Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit in this temple with not only did they take their, 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 you know, their religion seriously, but he's here in the midst of that talking and preaching a message to people whose hands are covered in blood. Jesus' blood. It's only two months after they crucified him. He says, you people, you, referred, you preferred Barabbas to the God himself, the God-man. Right, And he points them to the reality that they crucified Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a crowd and everyone in here had blood on your hands because you were all murderers, I don't know how I would say, you're all a bunch of murderers, I'll tell you, you got to repent. It's like, let's get him. You know what I mean? That's what I would think you would do. And here's Peter telling them that, telling them to repent. And I want you to, to feel that, the hostility and see the boldness of what Peter is doing in the midst of this place, of this crowd, right? So when we think, well, I got a really hard pastor, you know, I work at such and such place, they don't really like Jesus, or, you know, I got to really be careful wearing my cross, or I put anything out on my desk, not to take away from that, but this is really, (laughs) like, bad, like, he's, in a, he's really bold. He's looking at people at the temple who just murdered Jesus and said, you're a murderer. They take their stuff really seriously. He's in the epicenter of, of life for them, and he's declaring the gospel. The Holy Spirit wants to empower you to fill you with courage in talking about Jesus. Now, notice I did not say he wants to empower you and fill you to be a jerk. That's not what I said. Okay? Or, or someone who is mean or insensitive, but courageous and bold. And we'll get back to that. I just want, I want you to see the context in your mind and see where Peter is standing and what he's doing and, and the incredible boldness it took for Peter to do that. So, number one, irritation and multiplication. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Look at that with me. And as they were speaking to the people, the man was just healed. The crowd had gathered. He, he, he told them that he had murdered Jesus. He calls them to repentance. And as they were, they were speaking and teaching about Jesus, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. What you have here is, you know, I'm trying to put this in my mind. What you have here is not only does like two sheriff cars show up. It's like two sheriff cards, the sheriff sergeant 
you know, the captain of the police, the governor, you know what I mean, and, and like, you know, uh, the mayor show up, like, like something's wrong. It's not just two squad cars, like everyone's showing up. The chief of police is there. It's like, it's serious. When all of them shows up, it's really serious. And what you see here what, is what they call, what the body of, of, of leaders is what's called a Sanhedrin. They, they, run, they ran the temple. They were the power brokers of Israel. They were the ones where, you know, they made all the shots. It's sort of like the courts and the Congress, all, all one religious body, the power brokers, the ruling body of Israel. So he says, first, the priests. So the priests were doing sacrifices. They hear the commotion because it was sacrifice time. It was the third hour. They were sacrificing. They hear the commotion, and the priests come and find out what's going on. It wasn't just the priests who were visiting. I think it was the actual temple priests. They were important. They were, they were, uh, uh, you know, uh, they were of an elite crew, and the priests uh, uh, show up. Then he mentions, look, at the captain of the temple, all right, or the guard, the temple guard. It's not the Romans. It was the people who oversaw the temple. They were, they were the police, the, the temple police. And, and I don't know about you. I worked in law enforcement for a while. If the captain is there, he's got backup because he doesn't go alone. Right? He's, he's bringing a group with him. So the chief of police, the man who's in charge of the temple, who's, a, who's in the line of the priestly family as well, he's there and he's got backup. He's got backup. So you got the priest. you got the, the, the chief of police there as well. So the priest and the chief of police. Now, he had crazy power. The only ones above him was Rome itself and their army who governed everything. The high priest, one man, and then the captain of the police. That's it. He was a third becking call. So we're talking about some powerful, powerful people here. In fact, it was the temple police, if you remember, who arrested Jesus. They're the ones that bound Jesus was the temple police, the Sagan, the captain. Okay? So we're, we're, we're talking about some there's an army here, right? They, they were there. They were, they, were to, they were to make sure that nobody stood up and, 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 and decided they wanted to be this Messiah, that this messianic expectations, this insurrection that was taking place regularly there, they were there to make sure people like that did not exist. Then the Sadducees, a small number of people, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So they were automatically angry and annoyed and irritated because they're preaching about the resurrection. You got this high, upper class, intimidating people standing in front of John and Peter. And if that wasn't enough, look in your Bibles at verse 5. The next day, the rulers, that's the leaders of the priests, the elders, that's the tribal heads of the family, the big shots, the scribes, verse 5 as well, the teachers of the law. Jump down to verse 6. You see the high priestly family, Annas, who, who was called the high priest, although he wasn't in, in, sitting in that position at that time, but he was the patriarch. He was the head of the family. And Caiaphas was there. He was actually the high priest. You have two other priests that were there. John, I think his name is. Um, let's see, chapter 4. Where am I? Chapter 4, verse 7. And when they said, nope, verse 6. John and Alexander. We're talking a mob. We're talking an imit- intimidating mob. Ones who actually crucified Christ. So when they say this group was greatly annoyed, I want you to feel this. It wasn't like you were at Subway and the people were upset or annoyed with you because you're on your cell phone and they're trying to take an order. You know what I mean? It's like it was greater than that. It's sort of like if you were taken captive, you know, and, and then you started irritating you know, the maniac from North Korea, right? Kim Jong and all his, like, militant communist army, and you, like, annoying them. Like, feel that. That's what this is all about. And then you tell him, you know what, Kim Jong? You're going to hell unless you repent, because you're a sinner and you're wicked. Let me, let me stick my finger in your eye. You know, that's, that's what this is. And, and, and notice what the, Peter and John are not there to discuss politics. Peter and John are not there to discuss Social injustice. Although there's a platform for that, don't get me wrong, but that's not what they're there for. They're preaching Christ, his death, his resurrection from the dead. So I guess the first principle I think, or at least question we can ask, is if you had one message to tell. If there's one thing you wanted to tell the leaders or the people of our day, your co-workers, there's one thing, would, would it be tax reform? Would it be health care? You know what I mean? Would it be controlling, you know, caring for the poor or feeding the hungry? All good stuff to discuss. Don't get me wrong. 
But verse 2 says they were annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So, the way I take that is, if you're going to irritate people and you're going to annoy somebody, do it with the gospel. Don't do it with your political views. You can discuss them. I do. Don't do it with irritating jokes. You haven't taken a shower. I don't know. But, you know, if you're going to offend somebody, let it be out of love for their souls as the truth of the gospel. And I'm saying that out loud. I'm really speaking to myself because I get caught up in that too. Let my life, O Lord, let people see my life, O Lord. My passion is for Christ above all things. that's, That's what I take out of that. I mean, there's a way to disagree respectfully and even a way to disagree and still love and serve people. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't, isn't that the truth about how you came to faith? Weren't you and I an enemy of God running from and disagreeing with the truth of our sinfulness and his holiness? The Bible says that we were an enemy of God. Colossians 1 says that we were alienated. We were hostile in mind. We were wicked in our deeds. And that Jesus came who reconciled us to the Father on the cross by his death, in order to present you and I, holy, we're not holy, he is, blameless, we're not blameless, he is, and above reproach before God, we're not above reproach, he is. That's the gospel. So we could agree to disagree, we can could, we could, we could have our disagreement, but let's make sure it's of love. We should stand, which we'll see on the exclusivity of Christ. And notice what God does as the gospel goes out, even in the midst of opposition, in the midst of offending some by its message, verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. That's what it's all about. It's unfortunate but true. We'll see later as we get through the book of Acts together that persecution is one of the ways God uses to bring gospel fruit. He sends persecution and people get saved. And here is Peter and John before this powerful body of men, boldly reminding them that they crucified Jesus, that God had raised him from the dead, and then they get thrown in jail for it. And yet because of this message, thousands of men that gathered in Jerusalem come to faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes the gospel will offend people. I know that. It's all throughout Scripture. It was in Jesus' own life. But when we stand on that truth, when we declare that truth, when we keep that central, people turn to Jesus. People have their sins forgiven. People receive eternal life. As it is written, Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Next we see the interrogation, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes, they're in jail, they take them out the next day, they're in Jerusalem. Verse 6, Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, the whole body of people there again, and all who were with the priestly family. Verse 7, and when they set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? So the next day, the mob is back. The Godfather's there. They go and get Peter out of jail. They set them in the midst. And, and in that day, what they would do is they would have a semicircle so they could all see each other and they'd put the accused to interrogate in the midst of them so they can see each other and interrogate the ones that they are, you know, talking to. And they say, where did you get this power? Whose name are you using? This is not, oh, by the way, we were, you know, we had nothing to do today. You know, so, so tell us, you know, if you'd like, you know, how you did this. Peter already made it clear Jesus is the Messiah. So I think it's fair to say that their inquiry had, I think anyway, more, had to, more to do with the fact that there's problems coming to Jerusalem and they didn't want problems. They were told to keep the peace. Rome had soldiers there as well and they were watching Jerusalem. And they didn't want more problems. And notice they didn't deny. They didn't deny that the man was healed. That's where this whole thing got started. They want to know how it happened. I don't think they were interested in in becoming followers of Jesus. I think they're more concerned about their own safety. But I can't help notice in this text, I want you to see it too. 
that, that they're the ones asking the questions. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? Is as I live my life in worship to God, as I live my life in subjection to God, as I live my life in, in, in gratefulness to God and the gospel, wouldn't it be nice that people say, wow, Lou, how do you do it? How do you forgive those who have harmed you? How, how do you stay away from that kind of sin? How do you have the power to love those kinds of people? How, how do you do that? And, and, and I could say, you know what? You're asking the question, let me tell you, it's not me. It's not me. It's because of Jesus that lives in me. It was Jesus who loved me. And really, he knows what a jerk that I can be. And he loves me and forgives me anyway. So I love people. I forgive people also. Yeah, that's how it works. I deserve death and hell. God comes along, gives me life. That is what you see. It's not me. It's Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? If we could live our lives in such a way that people are like watching us and then ask us questions about our love for Jesus. It's not about me. It's about him. Here Peter's asked the question. He's interrogated. And then he defends himself with respect and boldness. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, right? We're going to see that in Acts. We have people filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens a lot in the book of Acts, they're, they're filled with boldness about Jesus. And he says to them, rulers of the people and the elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to crippled men, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ, that is by the name of Jesus Christ, in Nazareth, of Nazareth, saying who he is, whom you crucified, yet God raised him from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well or whole. The leaders of that day had walked by that man several times. They knew him. They saw him. They probably gave him some money on the way to the temple. And like, how is this well-known man who we know, who we know from birth, who's crippled, how is he healed? It's by the name of Jesus, of the Nazarene. There's probably a moment of silence. They, they, you, know, you know, you mean that guy that came in about two months ago riding the colt? Everyone was waving those palm branches and then screaming to crucify him. That guy, the guy that was in Judea, that we call the magician or the glutton who hung out with tax collectors and whores and prophets, that that guy, that guy who we crucified not long ago, just six weeks, seven, eight weeks ago, that guy? Yeah, that guy. You know what? He's still alive. You know, his followers were telling everybody that he was alive. And the Sadducees didn't want to hear about the resurrection. That was a war against them. And then Peter turns to Psalm 118, and he says, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's a messianic prophecy. Jesus used it of himself in Matthew 21. Peter will pick it up and write it to the churches in in 1 Peter 1 or 1 Peter 2. He, he tells them, look, you're the council, you're the members, you're the builders, which means they're the teachers and leaders of that day. You rejected him. They would have picked up the, the, the image of stone because Daniel wrote about the stone, the Messiah, who would come with an eternal kingdom. They knew exactly what he was saying. But they said, listen, he's not only the stone, the rock that you rejected, but he's the Savior. Verse 12 is a great verse of Scripture. And there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Folks, in the original language, in, in the original Greek, the phrase there is no one else appears as the subject of salvation, making it an emphatic statement. There is no one else, no one ever, forever, only Jesus can provide salvation, even you Jews who have the temple, who have the oracles of God, the scriptures of God, it is only by Jesus. That's what he's saying. Now, let's scale that back for a minute. Even though it was in Jerusalem, remember, the culture of that day was pluralistic like our culture. There were many gods, there were many deities, there were many ways to worship outside of immediate Jerusalem in all the culture of that day. There was, there was gods of the sun, gods of the moon, god of the fertility and, and, and the earth. And there were many gods, pluralistic, many ways, many roads, just like today. 
And let me tell you, standing on this exclusivity of Christ, there is no one else will get you in trouble like it did then. It does sometimes today as well. Doesn't it? So this exclusivity of salvation would have been rejected in that day like it is rejected in this day. So let's talk about that for a minute. There are those who teach that all religions are right and the same, right? All religions are right, all religions are the same, and that all religions bring salvation to the one who practices it. So whatever you practice, whatever religious beliefs you have, there's salvation for you. And just let me say on the face of that, if people say all roads lead the same way, all roads lead to God, just on the face of that, that cannot be true. That cannot be true. All religions of this world have one thing in common, and that's a polar opposite of Christianity. What all other religions have in common is that you deal with your problem, you deal with the evil of this world, you deal that through self-salvation. You save yourself. In Buddha, you suppress evil desires and save yourself. Confucius taught, you know, right education, self-cultivating, moral living, save yourself. Hinduism, you, you detach from your ego, you live in unity and divine with the divine and you save yourself. Hinduism says that God has been incarnated several, several times. Christianity says once it was a miracle to a virgin birth. He's God, eternal, incarnate, and his name is Jesus. In Islam, you save yourself by doing good deeds. They have this thing called the mizan. It's a spiritual scale. Some of you have seen the pictures. Your good outweighs your bad. Christianity says there is nothing you can do good. It's filthy rags before God. You save yourself through Islam. Opposite of the cross. In Orthodox Judaism, salvation comes by obeying Moses, by obeying the law, by being a good person. They say the Messiah has not come. Christians claim the Messiah has come. The New Age, you know, I don't even, it's hard to even nail them down. Part of the divine, one in nature, I don't know. Say whatever you want, but it's all about yourself. It's saving yourself. Every religion is about saving yourself. You learn something, you go somewhere, you experience something, and the object of your faith is you. The reality is, trying to save yourself is really trying to accomplish for your own self, your own self-worth, your own self-esteem, to prove that you matter, to to have a sense of love, to have a sense of self and acceptance, to, to be somebody, to justify your existence. And all religions have that one thing in common. You do it through saving, doing, working, experiencing things for yourself. Fill the hole yourself. But Christianity comes along and says, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. It's not about what you have done, it's about what Jesus has already done. It's not about you saving yourself, it's about you in need of a Savior. In religion, the problem of our sin and brokenness becomes substituting ourselves for God, putting ourselves where only God should be. We become our own saviors and lords. Christianity says you can't save yourself. Salvation is God substituting himself for you on the cross, in the person of Jesus, living a perfect life, a life you could never live, and a death we should have died, but he dies in our place. It's about not us substituting ourselves for God, but God substituting himself for me. The reason the apostles were so bold and willing to preach the exclusivity of Christ was because the implications of all that Jesus did and all that Jesus was and all that Jesus is demands it. You hear me? Demands it. No one has ever said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. No one has ever said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. No one ever said, I am the way, singular and exclusive. The truth, singular and exclusive. The life, singular and exclusive. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one ever said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be murdered, three days rise from the dead and do it. Many people claim to know God. Many people claim to point you to God. Many people claim that they can show you and all these kind of claims, but no one makes the claim that you can't save yourself 
And he will substitute on your behalf dying on the cross to save you. And then pouring out his blood and rising from the dead. And what you see here in the boldness of Peter and John are two men who heard Jesus teach, saw the impeccability of his character, saw the miracles, witnessed his death, resurrection, risen from the grave, and now giving testimony of the inevitable, inescapable reality or implication that Jesus Christ is God who came in the flesh, who died for sins, and rose from the grave. That's what you see. It's undeniable of the reality of Jesus. It is only Christianity that says your problem, you need to admit it, is your sin. That you've been substituting yourself, putting God where God should be, putting yourself there, I mean, being your own savior, trying to save yourself. Save yourself. And until you accept the reality that you cannot, there's nothing you can do, it's all been done for you. It's not by your moral effort, it's by Jesus' moral effort. It is by his keeping of the perfect law and only by the cross that God accepts us, he loves us. Because of Jesus' record, not yours, can you be saved. And in that day, like our day, there's exclusivity of Christ. People don't want to hear it. But let me tell you this, folks, as we move on. You can say Christianity wrong if that's the choice you want to make. And if you're here saying, I don't believe, you, you can make that choice. It, it's not a good choice. Hell is forever and hot's really long. Okay, but, but you can't say with any integrity that all religions are the same, that all roads lead to God. Because if you know the claims of Jesus, the work of Jesus, that is not an option. C.S. Lewis rightly said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept him and his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this, about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The implication of all that Jesus said, all that Jesus did, all his work on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, clearly teaches there is only one way. And that's through Jesus Christ. They don't like it. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were, they were astonished. And they recognized that They'd been with Jesus, verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And you see, they're, they're like, you're uneducated. You're not part of this elite group of educated, theologically trained scribes and Pharisees. You're common men. You're fishermen. Really? It's like, you, know, you didn't know, they didn't understand that Peter and John had been filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't recognize the fact that they opened up their Bible and did their devotion for three years. And when they had a question about Isaiah 6, they went to God. Hey, Jesus, can you tell me what this means? Oh, let me sit down. I'll tell you. Like, who gets theological training like that? <laughs> Filled with the Holy Spirit, trained by the Lord Jesus Christ. When they opened up their Bibles, they knew what they were talking about. But one of the things that I, that I, I think we need to catch in this passage is they're bold, but they're not arrogant. You know, boldness is one thing, arrogance is another. The cross removes arrogance. It should, anyway. Arrogance is filled with pride. Boldness here has to do with truth and respect. The apostles were not part of the elite group of religious leaders who got their self-worth, who got their salvation, who, who worked for themselves through their education and through their keeping of the law. The apostles were resting in the reality that their salvation was of God and Christ alone. And that had a, a major identity impact. They didn't really, there was no inferiority or superiority. They weren't looking up to these religious leaders as if we're not allowed to speak because you're better than us. They're not looking down at them saying, you know what, we're Christians, you're not. Their identity was in Jesus. They're just, they're just, just declaring the truth about him. It didn't matter. There was no inferiority. There was no superior. You can't be inferior. 
And you can't have a sense of superiority if your identity is in the gospel. It's impossible. You deserve hell. God gave you life. It was a gift. It's by grace. That, that just about levels it. You know what I mean? Verse 15. And when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another because they wanted to shut the apostles up, right? Verse 16. What are we going to do with these guys? That was my translation. For that a noble sign was given, was performed through them as evidence to everybody in the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that it may not spread, we don't want this to go any further, let us warn them, let us instruct them, let us tell them, speak no more. Don't do this again in the name of Jesus. They're in a dilemma. They've got problems. They want, they, want the, they want them to stop. Don't do this anymore. On the other hand, they've got to deal with this notable sign that the apostles did that everyone knows. And this miracle was undeniable and puts them in an awkward position. Like, what are we going to say? What are we going to do? So verse 18, verse 18, they tell them. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. One of the things that I, I sense in this package, passage, which will, is going to change, it almost seems like they threw him in jail, gave him a night to sleep in the dungeon, right? We're talking about jail, first century. No swimming pools, cable TV, all that stuff, okay? We're talking about a dungeon. Thinking, hoping, when they come out the next day, like their sail is blown. You know what I mean? Like the air has been let out. And they're like, look, don't do this anymore. You know, we, they're going to flog them soon, and things are going to get worse. But right now it seems like there's, there's a loss of steam, like, what are we going to do with this? Let's just tell them to knock it off. We, you know, we crucified this guy. We tried to get rid of him. We think we did. Now he's back. He, they're preaching in his name. He, it, it appears, he, you know, he, they're, they're using the guy we murdered. And now they're saying he's alive. He's doing these miracles. and They're calling upon his name. It's like a bad nightmare. Like, oh, my word. You know, you ever see those movies when someone really thinks they're dead? And like later on in the movie, they're not dead. And they're like, oh, you, know, you know, like, you know, terror comes over their face and they see the person. It's like, we killed this guy. Now they're saying he's alive and he's healing people again. Like, what are we going to do? And that brings us right to the determination. Look at verse 19. Peter and John answered them, listen, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. You're the leaders of the law. You're the scribe. You're the Pharisees. You're the religious leaders. You make that decision. You judge, verse 20, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We know the reality. We know the implications of this. We're just going to keep on speaking, verse 21. And when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The apostles replied that despite the warning and threats, we're not going to stop preaching Jesus. Now, you've got to remember, this wasn't a to-do list for the apostles. This wasn't a good idea. This wasn't a fad. It'll pass. When I became a Christian 20-something years ago, somebody uh, very close to the family at that point, when I came in, like, you know, I went from, like, totally crazy drug and everything, and now I'm, like, reading my Bible, like, ah, it'll pass. One of those fads. Like, 27 years, it hasn't changed yet, but he's probably still waiting. I don't know. But, like, this is not a fad. It's not a good idea. Acts 1 says you're going to be powered for the purpose of declaring the gospel. We cannot... He says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That Jesus is who he said he was. We know it. We saw it. We experienced it. We can't keep quiet about it. And again, I, I can't help but think, what are we so bold about? What are we constantly speaking about? What are we talking about in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our work, in our schools? What is it in your life that is so propelling you to speak football? Kids, your job, your body, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, political atmosphere. Again, okay things to talk about. I'm not saying that. But what is compelling them to speak was Jesus. You remember when you first fell in love with your wife? I, re I remember talking to my wife on the phone. It's like 3 in the morning, you know, like... You know, like you're trying to stay up. You don't either want to hang up because I want to talk about her. I fell in love. I, f I found this girl. Well, I want to talk about it. In this passage, the phrase cannot but speak is emphatic again. In fact, there's, a, there's another negative clause in that, in that sentence to make it a double negative. Like it's really, 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 I can't stop. I can't stop. Very forceful. I'm not going to stop. I cannot stop. I'm going to keep 
telling people about Jesus. Alexander uh, McLaren, a Scottish pastor, said this. I love this, this quote. A soul, he says, uh, habitually in contact with Jesus will imbibe, which means soak, sweetness from him. Just as garments laid away in a drawer with some perfume absorb fragrance from that beside which they lie. There's a certain perfume, there's a certain scent, there's a certain thing that's permeating these disciples, these apostles. It's the love of God. It is the freeing of salvation that they received by grace. So their argument is clear. You can't deny what we did. We have power and authority or this guy wouldn't be healed. The power comes from Jesus, the guy that you killed, he's alive. If, if he's healing today, he, he, you know, he's, he's, no matter what you think you did, he's still alive. And in Jesus' name, there's not only physical healing, because he's always pointing back to the spiritual. Your sins can be forgiven. There's no other name under heaven which is given to man that they may be saved. How are you going to escape that? How will you escape that? That's the claims that Jesus made. All Christian martyrdom, and there's some going on today, a lot going on today, is because of that claim. The exclusivity of Christ. What's the point of dying for your faith when there are five roads that lead to heaven? So when the government says, confess Caesar as Lord, we say, no, no, no. Can't do that. I'm not doing that. When someone says, confess Allah as the one true God and Muhammad is only prophet, the Christian says, no, no, no. I, I can't do that. Why? Because Caesar's not Lord. And Muhammad is not the prophet. Jesus alone is Lord. He's alone made those claims. He alone said he poured out his blood for our forgiveness of sin. He alone raised from the dead and his tomb is empty to this day. And that's the boldness. That's the implication. Kent Hughes in a commentary in Acts tells a story. And then we'll close. He says, Peter Cartwright was a great circuit-riding Methodist preacher in Illinois. Maybe some of you heard of him. One Sunday morning when he was scheduled to preach, his deacons told him, Oh, no, no, you know, I missed a really important part here. Cartwright was a civic, uh, circuit-riding Methodist preacher, so he preached all throughout Illinois. He was an uncompromising man, uh, Kent Hughes writes. He had come north from Tennessee because of his opposition to slavery. It was back in the day. So he's in north, he's in, and he's in Illinois. One Sunday morning, he was scheduled to preach, and his deacons came to him and said, listen, President Andrew Jackson is in the congregation. Knowing that Cartwright was used to saying whatever he felt God wanted to say, regardless of how people would react, they warned him, listen, don't say anything that would offend this chief executive president of the United States. He stood up to preach and he said, I understand President Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded, to guard my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. <laughs> the audience was shocked. They wondered how the president would respond, but after the service, he came up to the preacher, Cartwright, and said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I would whip the world. The boldness of Peter and John. Here's the bottom line. Here's the question, the bottom line. What would make a Jewish people who believe in a monotheistic, uh, one God, who is so transcendent he would never, ever worship a man? Never. What would make a pluralistic culture who believe in multiple gods to stand both views, both people stand on the exclusivity of Christ as being the true God, the one God, the only God who died and rose and the only way to heaven? What would do that? It's the resurrection from the grave. It is the resurrection from the grave. Jesus' claims are true, not simply because he said so, but because he validated all that he said and all the work that he accomplished when he rose from the grave. The gospel, the person and the work of Jesus is an exclusive truth claim, but is also the most inclusive, exclusive tr truth in the world. And what I mean is this. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what culture background, what religious heritage you have. I don't care what you've been worshiping. Jesus Christ calls all people, all nation, all tongues, all tribe to come. He died for all your sins. I don't care how wicked you were. I don't care how wicked you are. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He's the only true God. He is both God and man. Therefore, he's the only one that can atone for your sins. That's the truth of the gospel. It got Peter and John in trouble. It killed Jesus. They murdered Jesus for his claim. So don't be surprised. 
Jesus Christ calls you, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, to repent, to stop trying to save yourself, to rest in the Father's love and all that Jesus has done for you on the cross. Listen, they were uneducated men. They were, they were, they were threatened by these fishermen. But why they were so bold was that they had an identity change, a self-worth, satisfaction, forgiveness, and acceptance was in Christ. They realized that they could not save themselves, that Jesus had to come and save them. That's how you become a Christian. This table, this communion table, represents that. And Jesus is calling you to repentance. He's calling you to faith. He's calling you to trust, not yourself, not the road you're choosing, but the cross on which he hung for you. The bread represents his body that was broken. The cup represents the blood that was shed for the remissions of sins. Come to him. If you have never experienced salvation, repent of your sins, trust in Jesus. Rely not on yourself. Rely alone on Jesus. His work and who he is. He's alive. He rose. He is seated and ascended to the Father. So what we do here at King's Chapel, the band's going to come up, the band's going to play. And we're going to just quietly stay in our seats and repent of sin. You guys can come on up. And, and I, I want to ask you, I want to ask you, who are you trusting in? What are you relying upon? If you've never trusted Christ, come. If you're a follower of Christ, come. As the band plays, we repent of sin. When you're done, in your seat, then come on up. Take the bread, take the cup, and partake in remembering and experiencing Jesus Christ who died for you, who rose for you, who ascended for you, who's calling you from wherever you are, whatever sin you have committed to repent and to turn. He will not kick you out. It's not, he will not kick you out. It is exclusive, he is the only way, but it is inclusive, he invites everyone to come. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for your word. I know, I know it's difficult, I know at times we are, we, our flesh cries out, we want to do it ourselves. I, I, want, to, I want to be able to, to hold you accountable, to hold others accountable. I want to be able to say, I did this myself. Lord, we know that is the opposition to the truth of the gospel. So Father, we pray as the band plays, as the music is sung, that we worship Jesus. He is the risen king. He alone died for sins. He alone shed his blood for sins. He alone rose from the grave, ascended on high, and will come again to restore all things. And Father, we pray that uh, we as your, your people would be bold, confident, but humble and meek and kind and generous and loving. And uh, Father, as we share the gospel with everyone around us, Lord, uh, we, we confess at times we may have not done that. We have an arrogance about us. Lord, may that never be. And Father, we pray that as your spirit moves mightily among, our, among us, Lord, that those who don't know you would come to know you. Their hearts would be changed, that they would recognize that self-salvation is, is, an, is an end to it itself. There's going nowhere. That, Lord, you alone save. So let us call upon you. Save us, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.